0: Live from Leimert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app and take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time but only by downloading our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, uh, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure. Should you miss us any day in real time, but I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tabby Smiley. And get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. In our second hour, Sunday evening, the Grammy Awards celebrated 50 years of hip-hop music with a star-studded performance in tribute to this music form that has become uh, hegemonic the world over. Over two dozen, over two dozen artists on stage last night at the Grammys. Personally, I had one question. Why? Why? I mean, I mean, why did all these hip-hop artists show up and show out for the Grammy telecast? To my mind, the Grammys have never truly embraced the genre, and more often than not, the Grammys have snubbed, refused to honor those who pushed the music and the art form into the stratosphere. But that's just me, and I'm no expert. UCLA Professor H. Sammy Aleem is an expert, and we will put my why question to him and a whole lot more queries about this half century of hip-hop music when he joins us in Hour Two. Professor Aleem's new text is entitled, Freedom Moves, Hip-Hop, Knowledges, Pedagogies, and Futures. Look forward to that conversation in Hour Two. For the month of February, the third hour of this program, as you already know, is the Domain of... Of the motivator Les Brown in his Black History Month radio residency following last week's masterclasses, entitled "It's Possible," and "It's Necessary." Today's theme, I'm told by Les, is "It's You." It's you. You've got to be hungry with Les Brown coming up at 11 a.m. Should you miss uh, me, uh, Les, less, uh, at 11 a.m.? Check out the encore. On your way home this evening at 6 p.m. But we commence today's program in conversation with the founder and president of Righteous Media, host of the very popular podcast, Independent Americans, and author of the forthcoming book, How to Fight, he ought to know, Paul Rykoff. So much to talk about with Paul today, the Chinese spy balloon. What a fascinating story, right? The one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, fast approaching. All manner of trending topics in our politics, if I know Paul, and I do, Paul Rykoff, welcome back to KBLA Talk 1580, my friend.
1: Great to be with you, sir. Happy Monday. I'm hoping we could talk Grammy, too, because I appreciate <laughs> your perspective. And that was, that was something else to see everybody on one stage at one time. That was something else. Let,
0: let's, let's start there. We'll, we'll jump from there. Um, what did you make of, uh, of the telecast last night, specifically uh, the tribute to 50 years of hip hop? You're a hip hop head.
1: You know, it didn't suck. I mean, I'll start with that. Like, yep. There have been some Grammys where it's kind of up and down, and I think overall it, was a, overall it was a pretty good show. I mean, maybe the underreported part of this was, how about Stevie Wonder and, and Smokey Robinson with Chris Stapleton? Mm-hmm. I thought that was tremendous. And Smokey Robinson, I had to Google it. He's 82 years old. He is indeed. I mean, to be up there doing his thing. And Stevie Wonder, who's also been, you know, I'm an activist at heart, and Stevie Wonder's been such a tremendous activist for so long. I feel like it's important to remind the next generation about his uh, leadership. I was telling my boys about it when we were watching. I had to explain to them the the legacy of Stevie Wonder and how long he's been in front. So I thought that was tremendous. And then, you know, the the hip-hop anniversary was just like people just kept popping out. It was like, you know, my high school and college days come to life. It was like a master playlist. I hear what you're saying. I don't know how they got them all there, but I know Chuck D. I've met some of these folks and, and admired them. And it was really, I think, a statement about how influential and how much in leadership hip-hop has become. I felt like that was the hip-hop uh, Grammys, you know, because you had Beyonce and you had this tremendous recognition of the impact mm-hmm. of hip-hop. So, you know, hip-hop's no, not going anywhere, and I feel like the Grammys are hip-hop now.
0: Yep. No surprise to me that they did it. I mean, after the success of the performance at halftime last year of the Super Bowl, we'll see what Rihanna comes with this year, but uh, the success uh, was uh, irrefutable um, last year. They, they turned it out at halftime, and so no surprise that the Grammys would step into it uh, on their telecast celebrating 50 years of hip-hop, but again, my point is that they really haven't respected the genre all these years, and you start, I mean, don't get me started, I can start with Kendrick and run from there, right, but you start thinking of all yeah. the artists, all the artists who should have won certain categories... <laughs> Uh, and should have gotten certain recognition from the uh, from the from the uh, the Grammys that they've not received over all these years. But then all these artists show up in this moment, you know, to sort of give the the Grammy organization cover. And I'm not bashing the Grammys. I'm just you know calling the spade a spade. They really have not embraced the genre uh, as well as uh, or anywhere near it, the, the the way it's been embraced. To your point, Paul, around the globe. And so last night to see all those persons show up, and I ain't hating. You know, I'm not trying to start no mess. I'm just saying it was just fascinating for me that these guys are all on a stage. You know, pushing the ratings uh, to the heights uh, for an entity that hasn't really embraced it. Its art form, the way it uh, should have, I think, over the years. But I digress on that for the moment. We'll get more to that uh, in, in hour two. Um, one things that, that that I'm fascinated to talk to you about. You want to talk Grammys. I want to talk spy balloon. So this story <laughs> this story has been so fascinating for me. And without coloring this first question too much, we'll drill we'll, we'll drill down a little deeper in a moment here. Um, but give me your take on this Chinese spy balloon. Again, I'm asking a broad question deliberately to start this.
1: Well, speaking of entertaining, right? Yeah. I mean, this was, this was like cable news candy. I mean, the cable news networks don't have this much fun unless there's a hurricane happening, right? Yeah. I mean, they, 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 this was wall to wall coverage, and I think the world and the country was understandably captivated by it. I think, Tavis, here's my core takeaway everything is partisan and politicized right now. And when it comes to national security, it gets especially dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I had to actually post something uh, that said to people, hey, don't shoot at the balloon. Because Marjorie Taylor Greene, in her insanity and her radicalism, said, you know, I know a lot of people who are going to shoot at this thing. I mean, and, and that's where we are right now. I mean, I was in Iraq when people shot up in the air because Uday Kusei Hussein had been killed. And, and we learned the hard way those bullets come down right? 20 people Mm -hmm. were killed in Iraq during those celebratory fires. And I think it just cuts to the core of the fact that we have to be responsible in our rhetoric and in our politics. And when something like this happens, you see how dysfunctional, especially I think the right side of our politics have become, where we can't even agree on national security imperatives and keeping our country safe. I think that was true during COVID. I think it's true around Ukraine, which I know we'll get into. But it's a really dangerous situation when our political leaders can't even agree or at least unite around defending our country and being responsible.
0: Mm. So ultimately, to your point, the balloon uh, was, in fact, shot down. And now there's a search mission underway to find the parts of that balloon that they think will tell them, tell us, um, our, our, our 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 agencies, more about what Russia is capable of, or Russia, China is capable of uh, when it comes to spying on us. So it was, in fact, shot down. Um, you think that was the right decision?
1: I do. You know, at the end of the day, you know, when it comes to technical and tactical decisions like this, I trust the greatest military on the planet. And it's, and from what we know now, you know, the president gave them the okay sometime around Wednesday, and then it's up to the Pentagon to figure out the right time and place to do it. And they've got to you know account for you know a million different factors, everything from the civilian airspace to where the wreckage might land. So I think it underscores that there's a lot of national security stuff happening below the radar that most Americans aren't tracking on. And a lot of it is critically important. And and I've been out talking a lot about China because China is really our number one adversary, politically, militarily, culturally. Ukraine and Russia have obviously sucked a lot of our attention, but China's the big dog. And and they are going to test us in the next couple of years. And if I had to predict the army my kids might get drafted to fight against. It's not going to be Russia, and it's probably not going to be North Korea. It would probably be China.
0: A lot I want to talk about uh, regarding the big dog of China. As Paul Rockoff put it a moment ago, we'll talk about Ukraine, this one-year anniversary, what he makes of where we are uh, a year later and billions of dollars later of taxpayer dollars in this country going uh, to Uh, support Ukraine in that war. Uh, I I, I heard Paul's comment a moment ago, and I'm not surprised he made it, but I want to interrogate it. And that is this notion that he believes that the U.S. military is still the greatest military on the planet. I want to press him on that and a great deal more when we come forward in this first hour of Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Paul Rykoff is our guest in this first hour of Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to have you with us on this Monday morning. A lot to talk about uh, politically uh and beyond with Paul Rykoff again. Delighted to have him with us today. Uh Paul, let me I think I want to go back to this question you you a uh, question you rather about this notion you raised earlier. Um, And again, as I said, not surprised that uh, you would say that, given that you served honorably in our military. But tell me why you believe that the U.S. military is still the greatest military on the planet, given that um, you already call China the big dog that we're going to be tussling with in the years to come. Uh, Why is ours still the greatest military on the planet as you see it?
1: Well, I think it it, it starts with money. I mean, the amount of money that we dedicate to to our defense assets is is really unparalleled. Um, then you've got a very unique culture within the American military where we've got a high level of professionalism uh, and dedication, you know, generations that have now built this all-volunteer military. Uh, we've got our alliances. We've got our technology. And I think maybe most of all we've got, you know, the moral backing of, of still, you know, although it's been battered at times, generally looked at as, as being the good guys, especially now in Europe, what's happening in Ukraine. I think the Europeans especially are being reminded about how much they need America. I mean, we've got the firepower, we've got the artillery, we've got the means of production that the Europeans just don't have. So when you get someone like Putin who starts rolling into other countries, uh, that those alliances on America become that much more important. And there's a part of Ukraine that I've been talking about, Tavis, that I think the people underestimate. If you assume that, that Russia is, let's say, our number two, number three, maybe number one adversary on the military battlefield, We spent less than 5% of our overall defense budget, and about 50% of the Russian military capacity has been taken out. Hardware, 200,000 casualties on the Russian side, and we haven't put any American boots on the ground. There's been no American bloodshed here. So I think when folks talk about the cost, they have to look at the cost relative to how much we spend on everything else. And also, compared to the cost of Iraq and Afghanistan, where we lost thousands of American sons and daughters in a brutal, what seemed like aimless series of wars at times. So I think this is a a very important moment for the United States, uh, especially because Ukraine is in a very perilous position right now. You and I have been talking about this for a year, and I was one of the guys who said they can win this. Mm -hmm. Um, But right now, they're also in a spot where they can start to lose this. And and the next couple of weeks, especially with a Russian offensive, are going to be critical.
0: We're going to talk about winning and losing here in just a second as we approach this one-year anniversary. Uh, but again, I'm going to stay on this notion of the military for a second. I, what I love about you, well, there are many things I love about you, Paul, many things I love about you, but one of the things I love about you is that you're always always—you're always open, you're always transparent. Even if people don't agree with your take on everything, you're, you're always transparent uh, and upfront about things. And when I asked you about why you think the U.S. military is still the greatest on the planet today, your first response was, let's start with the money. Now, there's no way you can answer that question uh, without talking about the money if you're being open, honest, and transparent. So my question is, you know, given that you are right about the fact that it's our money that makes us as great as we are militarily, um, we're sacrificing though. We're sacrificing a great deal on the home front, given the disproportionate amount of money that we put uh, toward military spending. It's always been that way, but it's 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 still unabated. And the cost, I think, um, that we pay at home for putting that much money uh, into our military budget, um, don't get me started you know, on Dr. King and, and the triple threat facing our democracy, racism, yeah. Yeah. poverty, and militarism. So you gave that answer. It was an honest and straightforward answer. But now critique the answer that you gave me vis-a-vis the amount of money, the percentage of money we spend of our taxpayer dollars going to defense spending.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can definitely make an argument it's too much. I mean, President Biden's proposing, I think it's $773 billion, so we're close to a trillion dollars that we spend on defense, which is really you know, almost incomprehensible. Um, I do think there's a real problem in America, which is that military policy and political policy are often disconnected. Um, a guest on my show this week is, is Rachel Maddow, who mm-hmm. everybody knows. She wrote a book called Drift, where she talked about how military policy and politics had drifted from each other. We're basically our government's doing stuff and doesn't have to ask us for permission. If you think about Iraq, you think about Afghanistan, you think about Ukraine, there's been no declaration of war. They haven't gone before Congress and said we want a declaration of war like in generations past. And I think that maybe cuts to the core of where I see the biggest risk. Um you know, there, the 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 authorization of use of military force happened after 9/11. The AUMF basically gave a blank check to the president to wage war without coming to America. And that includes spending. That includes activities like shooting down balloons or getting involved in Ukraine. And I think that maybe, T- Tavis, is the most dangerous part of the modern American construct, is the American people aren't asked. The American people aren't counseled. The American people often aren't even involved in the conversation. And that you know, is a function of what happened after Vietnam, mm-hmm. and I think doesn't serve us well. They also don't serve in the military in California. You got 32 military bases. Folks may not realize there's that many all across California. The military is one of, if not the biggest employer. So we're so entrenched into every element of our society that I think it's constantly in need of, of conversation for the Democrats and the Republicans. You look at Joe Biden; he's not pulling back on defense spending. He's not, you know, that much different in spending than the Republicans. So. I think it's an important conversation when we need to constantly have and push at the local level too. ask your elected representatives, be asking candidates for president about these questions exactly. Because in my view, also, Tavis, there's nothing more more important. The stakes are never higher. People are caring about those balloons, that balloon, because it's flying over our missile silos. We have missiles. We have nukes. The the North Koreans are threatening to use nukes. And we have to remember that those stakes are higher than anything else in government and politics.
0: Let me ask before I get back to this uh, Chinese spy balloon. Let me ask to your point about uh, uh, drift um, and that long list of things that you laid out that the American public um, seems to be unaware of because we're just not informed by our government. The, I guess the question is whether or not you think we care. Do everyday people care about this drift? I'm, I'm not sure because I don't see I don't see the sort of outrage um, that one might expect or hope uh, would be in the offing. Given the fact, as you mentioned a moment ago, that Joe Biden is spending as much or more on defense spending as Republican presidents uh, would and have. Uh, And to your point, we're a year into this war uh, in Ukraine. Again, we don't have boots on the ground, but we've spent, you know, we're giving billions and billions and billions of dollars to support this. So we're essentially in a proxy war, if you will, with Russia. But the American public writ large, to my mind, I'm on radio every day. I don't hear folk calling and complaining about this, about the drift, Paul. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think, I think you're hitting on. I mean, look, one of
0: my biggest criticisms of the last, you know,
1: 30 years of foreign policy is that after 9-11, George Bush didn't ask America to do anything. He didn't ask us to have our taxes go up. He didn't ask us to sacrifice. He didn't ask us to send our son, sons and daughters. And that created a, a cleavage, you know, a, a, a divot that still exists today and drives everything. I mean, people don't realize that, you know, I think it was last week, uh, the U.S. military killed an islamic state leader in somalia mm-hmm. we are operating militarily in somalia and in other countries around the world where they haven't been brought before congress the american public doesn't know that we not only have assets there we have sons and daughters there america's sons and daughters are in places like somalia and in large part what we've got now is a forever war after that 9-11 stance now the president and the department of defense do have a free reign to engage in combat and that's what it is combat around the world. So I think your point is well taken, but also, you know, I think people who are listening who have sons and daughters in the military, who are themselves in the military, maybe the veterans community, especially have a special uh, radar for it. But I think we constantly need to push our political leaders, especially to have that same level of, of attention and care and responsibility and accountability.
0: My my fear, you mentioned earlier one of your greatest fears, uh, is that the American people are not consulted on this, and here we are again a year into this situation with Ukraine. We're giving billions of dollars, but we have not declared war. Uh, And so we're again, to my mind, in a proxy war against Russia. We'll put a pin in that for the moment. But it seems to me that when you have things like this Chinese spy balloon and to use the word you you, uh, invoked earlier, it was very entertaining uh, to watch this balloon fly over and to watch U.S. missiles shoot this balloon down. Now they're um, uh, in the oceans trying to recover. What was in that balloon, we're told, uh, uh, stuff that was uh, the size of two school buses, uh, they're trying to recover now from, from the from the ocean waters and the ocean floor. That said, it seems to me when you have uh, things like this in, in the news media that the American people are, in fact, paying attention to, perhaps our eyes should be on something else, but we're watching this, and it's on the news every day, uh, 24-hour uh, coverage uh, wall-to-wall. My fear is that that alone, Paul, uh, creates an environment where you can make the case to increase military spending. So it's not going to go down. If they use this story mm-hmm. wisely, they increase military spending. That's my fear. Talk to me.
1: You know, I think that often happens. Um, you know, the State of the Union tomorrow night. Right. And and I would urge everybody that's watching to look for the focus on national security. I think China is going to be much more front and center. But how do we approach China? Are we saber-rattling? Are we calling for an increase in funding for the military, are we becoming more aggressive? Are we going to bolster support for Taiwan? Are we going to try to be more diplomatic? Anthony Blinken canceled his trip to China, which was really important and and uh, and historic. But he pulled that that trip away, so now we're not uh, going to be as diplomatically engaged as we would have been before. And there's another piece of this too. I mean, this is happening as the Marines reactivated a base on Guam which is a really important strategic footprint in the Pacific, in in protecting Taiwan, in bolstering against China. This is something most folks didn't see. But the Marine Corps has its first base, its first new base in 70 years, and it's in Guam. And now we're also expanding into the Philippines. So we are putting the chess pieces in the board to be engaging China at a much higher level. And I think that is the responsibility of the president most of all to inform the American people. And I'm grateful that guys like you, Davis. I mean, you don't have to cover this today. We could talk Grammys all day long, but it's important that thought leaders like you are engaging the American people on issues of national security and national defense because it crosses over into everything, not just funding and whether or not we have money for the homeless, but it was the California National Guard that was deploying during COVID. They're the same folks that are going to be there during wildfires and floods. So it's all interconnected. And that's a conversation we need to continue to have.
0: Well, I couldn't do this without you. And I'm always honored when you come on the program. Um, I'm looking at my clock and I got about 45 seconds before news, traffic and sports. Let me tell you where I want to go on the other side with our guest, Paul Rykoff. Um, tomorrow night, as Paul said, I was going to get to this on the backside and we will. Um, tomorrow's the big uh, speech from the president, State of the Union address tomorrow night. Uh, and uh, I am sure the president will stand up and utter those words that every president utters, whether it's a a, a truth or not, uh, that the state of our union is strong. Uh, You can expect that line tomorrow night, I am certain, from the president. I'm going to ask Paul Rykoff when we come forward whether or not that's a lie. Is the state of our union strong uh, and how one assesses the strength or the weakness of our union at the moment? I have my own scorecard. I mentioned Dr. King a moment ago. King's scorecard would be how are we doing on racism, poverty and militarism the triple threat facing our democracy what's paul Rykoff got to say about whether or not the state of our union is strong that and a great deal more we haven't even gotten to ukraine yet on this one year anniversary what will the president say about that tomorrow night a lot more to talk about when we come forward after news traffic and sports with paul Rykoff on kbla talk 1580 continuing our conversation with our guest in this hour paul reikhoff the founding president of righteous media and host of the very popular podcast, Independent Americans, His guest this week on the podcast is Rachel Maddow, who we all know, and um, uh, I'm sure that will end up being Paul one of your most downloaded podcasts <laughs> uh, with uh, with with Rachel uh, and you in in, in dialogue. Um, let me let me let me uh, let me pivot now to uh, what you teed up a moment ago, and that is that tomorrow night is the President's State of the Union address, and so we will hear from the President tomorrow night, uh, and there are certain things that I expect he will talk about. Uh, I expect he's going to mention Ukraine. We'll talk about that with Paul Rykov in a second here. But let me start with that line that I that I highlighted a moment ago that every president utters in every one of these uh, State of the Union speeches, whether it's true or not. And that is the line that the state of our union is strong. I should do some research to find out who first said that. But whoever said it <laughs> first, whoever said it first, they've been telling that lie ever since that president first uttered that line. And every president utters the same line. And when they do it, uh, it's, the, it's the one time in... The president's speech where you know that both sides of the aisle are going to stand up. There aren't very many of those moments these days where you get Republicans and uh, Democrats to both stand up and applaud uh, 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 aggressively. So tomorrow night, he'll utter that line, the state of our union is strong. Everybody will stand up and applaud, and we know it's a lie. That's my take. Give me your take on whether or not you think across the board on your scorecard, the state of our union is strong.
1: I don't disagree with you. And and I think presidents love to say it, but if you say it a lot of times, it doesn't necessarily make it true. And I think, you know, I am, I always say to folks, how do you feel, right? Like folks who are listening right now, do they feel like it's strong? Do they feel like their communities are strong? Do they feel like their pocketbooks are strong? Do they feel like their personal security is strong? And I think there's a lot of nervousness. I think there's a lot of instability. I think there's a lot of caution. I think there's a lot of indecision. Uh, and i think a lot of it is focused on our political leadership where we don't know if they can actually even get anything done right whether it's responding to gun violence or it's responding to policing situations or responding to the federal government's uh, need to pass a budget i mean i think the real thing we got to look forward to chavez uh, is not just what's happening but what's next and i think 2023 is going to be a logjam year in washington it's going to be nasty. It's going to be divisive. And there's also just crazy, stupid things that they're doing that I want to raise up that I think folks often don't see. Tavis, one of the first things this new GOP Congress did was remove metal detectors from the floor of the House. Mm. Kevin McCarthy came in and said, I want to remove metal detectors, right? We're talking about violence. We're talking about fighting. We saw what happened during McCarthy's nomination. There was almost a fistfight on the floor. Yep. And people like Marjorie Taylor Greene want to bring a gun to the floor of the House. And there are no longer metal detectors there. So I bring that as a, as a point to maybe just show how the stupid, I call it the stupid, has really invaded the minds of so many people, especially in our politics right now. It's much more contagious than COVID. The stupid is everywhere. And I think it's, it's undermining so many parts of our, of our government and our society. Mm-hmm. I've been to two state of the unions myself. It was a tremendous honor to be there. And it's quite a spectacle. But I don't think you can say with a straight face right now that, that this, this country is strong. It feels very divided, feels very fragmented, and I think folks are concerned, understandably.
0: Well, one, uh, a couple things. One, there will be metal detectors to not, tomorrow night when the president shows up. I can guarantee you that. Uh, they, they, will, they, yep. will, they will reinstall them for one night, um, uh, given that the president will be uh, in the well of the House uh, tomorrow night giving uh, his speech. Uh, and secondly, you know, it occurs to me and everybody in this audience um, that these are the same people uh, who had to endure January the 6th. So we all saw uh, January 6th and these idiots, I mean, these these members of Congress vote to do away with metal detectors uh, after all the hell they raised about what happened on January the 6th. I mean, I I digress on that. To your point, it's just completely stupid. I was talking to a friend yesterday who used a phrase that I love every time she uses it. And the line is that people do stupid because stupid is free. People do stupid because stupid <laughs> is free, uh, and that's why these members of uh, Congress, these Republicans specifically, are doing stupid because it's free. But you endure and survive January the sixth, and then you take out the metal detectors. I'm again completely stuck on stupid. I guess the question, Paul, I want to ask right now is whether or not, speaking of the state of our union being strong, and let me just uh, pivot just for a second. The Washington Post, the Post has a poll out today, Paul, that finds that six in ten Americans say President Biden has not accomplished much despite all the bills he's passed. Now, in fairness to President Biden, he's gotten some good stuff done, some significant bills he's gotten through. But six in 10 Americans say that they don't feel the president has accomplished much, which suggests to me that, one, they're just not feeling it or uh, which is the point you raised a moment ago, or number two, they're just disconnected. How everyone takes that, and I'll get out of your way and let you respond to it. The question I'm driving to, since you are the voice in the country these days uh, vis-a-vis independent Americans, indeed, that's the name of your podcast, Independent Americans, do independents feel that the state of our union is strong and, and, and that Biden has the country on the right track?
1: I don't think they do. You know, about 50% of this country now considers themselves independent or unaffiliated. 50% of veterans consider themselves independent. 60% of young people consider themselves independent and unaffiliated. I think it's bigger than Biden. I think they feel like this system is failing us. They feel like this two-party duopoly run by two parties, and obviously they're not the same, but this two-party duopoly, this congressional system that, you know, elects people for two years— to raise hell and push to the partisan fringes and, and raise money and go back down and do it some more. Um, the, the policing in their communities is is not working for them. So I, I think it really comes down to, you know, inflation is hitting people hard. You can say it all day long how great the economy is doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the price of milk in my neighborhood is high and going up. So I think there is a, almost a cognitive disconnect among politicians. I am a supporter of Joe Biden. I think he's done a lot of good things. But sometimes he reminds me of, like, the Department of Veterans Affairs, right? He's got kind of a branding problem here. Mm. Like, he may be doing good stuff, and the VA is doing good stuff, but there's a lot baked into it. People just don't believe it. And that's a problem. That's a problem in our media system. You know, if 6 and 10 don't think he's doing well, probably 2 or 3 in 10 of them are watching Fox News and are getting programmed to believe he's not doing well. So I think it really cuts to the core of how fragmented our country is right now, and it, Biden can't get above it. He it, can't get above it, he can't get around it, and he sometimes gets swallowed up by it.
0: It it may be a branding problem, Paul. I'm, I'm willing to grant you that. Biden isn't the best messenger. I get that. But 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 it all it, it could also be the following, that this country has moved from being how about I put this, skeptical to being cynical. And I've always believed that skepticism is healthy. Cynicism is dangerous. And I'm just wondering at this point whether any president, no matter what he or she were to get done, just given the condition and the state of our demos, whether or not we've just moved from the category of skeptical to cynical and there ain't no going back. There's no retrenchment.
1: You know, I'm still an optimist at heart, and I think this is an optimistic country. And I think what we're facing most of all, is a crisis of leadership. Mm. I think this country wants new leaders. They want uh, post-partisan leaders. They want leaders who look different, who sound different, who act different. And we're likely to have you know two guys who are old white guys over 80 years old running for president in two years, and that doesn't feel like America nowadays. I and mean, you and I have talked before about some rising leaders, including my friend Wes Moore down mm-hmm. in, in Maryland. He's governor now, and I think there there's a generation of leaders, and and there aren't many like Wes. But I'll use Wes as an example. Who I think can represent hope, who can represent a new kind of leadership, a new kind of dynamism, a new kind of perspective that can actually bring people together so i'm i am I am pessimistic about where we are right now, but I still believe that there is a new generation of leaders coming up if we can get them in the fast track and we can get them in office to include a lot of folks that aren't partisan that don't want to run as Democrats or Republicans. I think there is hope because this generation that you know was born after nine eleven and grew up in the pandemic. Some of them are amazing, Tavis. I see them all the time. I work with young people. They could be our next greatest generation, and they could take us to a better place.
0: When we come forward, we'll go straight to Ukraine, uh, because the president will certainly have to address that issue tomorrow night uh, as we approach the one-year anniversary of this war in Ukraine. Our guest is Paul Rykoff. More with him when we come forward. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Paul Rykoff on KBLA Talk 1580, founding president of Righteous Media and host of the very popular podcast, Independent Americans. Um, so, Paul, Ukraine, it's uh, it's impossible, it seems to me, for the president to step to that lectern tomorrow night and not address the issue of Ukraine. So um, there are certainly two questions I want to ask you. I, I start with your assessment of earlier in this conversation that uh, Ukraine has been winning in many respects, but could lose this given the offensive that you expect in the coming that we all expect, for that matter, in the coming days. But you've been the one person on this program consistently over the last year saying that Ukraine can win this. But I hear a little bit of uh, you know hesitancy now uh, on your part about whether or not that is still the case. Talk to me.
1: You know, you and I often talk about culture and sports and music. And, you know, if you watch basketball, there's that point like midway through the third corner. It's like a make or break time in any basketball game. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, your Lakers beat up on my necks a couple of days ago. And we'll save that for another time. (laughs) There's this points in in, in a game where, you know, it's critical that that it'll turn the tide because you're running out of time or you can get the momentum. That's what this first six months of this year will be for Ukraine, in my view. Um, they have, they have held off the Russians and that's, what's really important here. They've held off the Russians in a way that most people couldn't have predicted a year ago. But unfortunately what we've been doing in the U S in particular, and at NATO is given them enough to defend against the Russians, but not to win, not to beat them out, not to get them out of their land. And I think that's the critical tipping point that has to change. Zelensky has to play this game with America and Biden. It's kind of like mother may I, he says, can I have another, can I have another, can I have another? And, and Biden's sitting there with a the gun chest full of F-16s and Abrams tanks, all the things that Zelensky needs, but he just can't get. So I think the question for Biden tomorrow and for the next couple of weeks is, are we going to let it go? Are we going to open up the gun chest and give this man and this people everything they need to fight back against a despot, someone who wants to annihilate them from the planet, someone who is a war criminal and someone who won't stop in Ukraine? Or are we going to keep playing this game of patty cake? Because that's really what it is. Zelensky asked for uh, HIMARS, and, and Biden said, I don't know if I want to give him those missile systems, and he eventually did. And they said, okay, can we have tanks? They eventually gave them after saying no. Same thing with Patriot missiles. And I think they're going to do the same thing with F-16s. Eventually, we're going to give them up. But imagine if we had given them all of that a year ago. Where would Ukraine be now? Where would their civilians be now? Because at the end of the day, Tavis, we we got to remember this. Their families are dying. Their kids are dying right now. Kids are getting bombed. Kids are getting shot. And if you were in their shoes, how would you feel if someone came into your house, kicked the door, in, and set it on fire and started killing everybody? That's what the Russians are doing, and we can't lose lose sight of that focus.
0: So what you're telling me is that for Ukraine to win this, it's going to require U.S. taxpayers to put up more of our resources, more of our dollars. Um, Is that what I'm
1: hearing?
0: 100%.
1: But you know what? Here's the thing. I'm going to tell you. It's worth it. And and I think that's the case that Biden has to make, because, again, I said it earlier, we're spending 5 percent of our overall defense budget, and we've taken out half of the biggest enemy we have on the planet, or one of the two biggest enemies. We could take out Russia. If we sat here a year ago and said, hey, we could take out half of Russia's military for 5 percent of our our defense budget and not lose a single American life, I think most strategists, I think even most Americans would say, you know what, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And that's really where we are right now. If we can not just drive them out of uh, Ukraine, but defeat Putin. Imagine a, a world where Putin is gone, where he's overthrown from within or he's jailed or killed. And imagine a place where we don't have to wake up and worry about Russia and the world doesn't have to worry about Russia. That is possible. It may take us a couple years. It may take us a lot of money, but this is not chasing Osama bin Laden all around the world. This is a very specific threat that we have been essentially battling for a generation. And we have an opportunity now, and I underscore an opportunity now to defeat Russia and but, that must be our objective
0: but something tells me Paul um and you're not you're not naive about this either having served in the military that Putin doesn't go gently into that good night and let's face it they've got nuclear arsenal they've got, they have a nuclear arsenal as well as we do so you're talking about defeating Russia and again I'm supposed to believe that Putin's just gonna roll over
1: I uh, know by no means this is by no means gonna be clean it will be messy it will be expensive But again, at the end of the day, it's worth it because the alternative is letting Putin stay there with nukes and letting Putin stay there and threatening his his enemies and threatening to invade Poland or threatening to to invade other places. Because you know what happens with a bully? He doesn't just sit down and say, I'm going to stop being a bully. This man will be this way until he dies. And I think the road to peace goes over his dead body. And we have to say it that way. He has to be out from within or from without until he's in jail or he's removed. This won't stop. Because as long as he has breath in his lungs, he's going to continue to threaten. But we also have to understand that that's his his M.O. He threatened nukes a year ago, and he didn't use them. What he is doing is paving cities, and he's annihilating communities, and he's using artillery in a way we haven't seen since World War II. I think we have to deal with the reality of what he's doing right now, which is pretty bad in and of itself.
0: And not just the reality of what he could do if we took it to a worst-case scenario. Our remaining moments with Paul Rykoff When we come forward, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Eighty. Got about three minutes left in this conversation. Uh, enough time to ask a couple of uh, more uh, questions of uh, Paul Rykoff, our guest, founding president of Righteous Media, and host of the popular podcast Independent Americans. Um. I don't know uh, if uh, or how the president will get at this tomorrow night, Paul. As you know, some months ago, he gave an entire speech about uh, the consequences of political extremism in our democracy. But that was before uh, we saw uh, Kevin McCarthy and Republicans take over by a slim margin in the House. You suggested earlier in this hour that 2023 is going to be an ugly and brutal year for us politically. How ugly do you expect it to get? uh, And do you expect the president to address it tomorrow night?
1: It could get real ugly, Tavis, and I'm, you know, I'm a no BS guy. I try to call it like I see it, and I think sometimes the president, his job is to sprinkle sunshine, but I think folks feel it, and they know it, and I think you've got a combination of factors. Number one, you have this animosity and this division that is often cutting along racial lines. Mm -hmm. You've got some economic insecurity with inflation and the other pressures, and then you just have a proliferation of weapons like we've never seen. I think you put those things together and you shake it up, and and we're in for what could be you know, what I've called the American insurgency. I think the number one threat to this country is domestic extremism, right-wing, guys with guns who could shoot up a place or get together and try to take over a place. I think it's happening on a regular basis below the radar. January 6th was not an outlier. It was just the most spectacular demonstration. So I think that in particular Mm -hmm. is something we're going to have to be very mindful of that also gets, you know, fueled by what's happening when there are, are killings by police that just drive a wedge even deeper into communities. So I think it's all going into a nasty cauldron, and I don't think Biden has the skill to communicate around it. So he's going to have to elevate new voices to be able to try to address
0: it. Yeah, it will be fascinating tomorrow night to see whether, whether he addresses the issue of police accountability. Uh, in a prior uh, State of the Union address, he uh, had a had one of those moments where everybody. Stood up and applauded uh, last year, in fact, when he said uh, the answer is not fewer police, but more police. That was his greatest Mm. applause line last year, as you recall. We need more cops, more police. And the entire Mm. uh, uh, auditorium, the entire well of the house just went up in a a massive applause. That was, again, the greatest Mm. applause line last year. Now, days after the burial of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, we will see whether he addresses that issue tomorrow night and uh, how he addresses it. Uh, Got 60 seconds left here. Uh, Say a quick word about your Rachel Maddow podcast and um, what people can expect from that conversation. And a quick word, if you will, about your upcoming book called How to Fight. Got about 60 seconds.
1: Well, I think what I try to do is bring in leaders from all sides who are shaping the conversation. Rachel's an old friend and talks not just about, you know, what's going on, but her life and her journey, which is interesting. And then for the last three episodes, we've been digging deep into Ukraine. So I have Sebastian Younger, the great author of The Perfect Storm and Tribe. I've got some folks from inside Ukraine, Dan Lamont and, and Nolan Peterson, who can give you perspective. And I'm trying to bring light to contrast the heat. You know, same thing you've been doing. For a long time, Tavis, and I think especially in moments like this, we got to raise positive voices and leaders who are out there in the fight trying to make an impact, and, and that's what we're trying to do every day on my show, just as you are.
0: Paul Rockhoff's a great guy. Always uh, honored to be in dialogue with him. Uh, again, he's founding president of Righteous Media and the host of the popular podcast, Independent Americans. Paul, good to have you on. We'll do it again. Have a great rest of the day, my friend.
1: Thank you, sir, as always. My, my gratitude.
0: Thank you, sir. Likewise. Our two of Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580 in a moment.